like that State Voices was a national organization that was going to be in service to the states. We were going to be a reflection of our values in everything that we do. And then we were going to center BIPOC communities. We were going to fight against anti-Blackness. And we were going to build a liberated world for Black people because I believe that when Black people are free, we can all be free. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I spoke with Alexis Anderson-Reed, an activist who's the CEO of State Voices, which runs a network of state tables promoting civic engagement, civic access, and civic representation. Prior to that, Alexis served as the deputy director of the Funders Committee for Civic Participation, a philanthropic affinity group dedicated to enhancing democratic participation in all aspects of civic life. She has deep roots with state voices, having previously served as their senior director of programs, leading efforts to support and expand the work of their state tables, and came to that after serving as executive director of Wisconsin Voices, the table in that state. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Alexis Anderson-Reed of State Voices. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Alexis. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure, of course. My name is Alexis Anderson-Reed. I am the current executive director and CEO of State Voices. And I'll tell you a little bit about myself and how I came to this work. So I was born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in a really diverse, you know, working class neighborhood. And I don't know if you've ever been to Wisconsin or familiar with Wisconsin or folks out there who are listening Milwaukee and Wisconsin, there's a lot of dichotomies, right? So on the one hand, there's this really rich history of diversity and culture and celebration of communities. Um, Over the summer, because there's only 90 days of summer, we have all these different festivals, you know, celebrating everything from African-American culture to the rich Latinx culture there to the immigrant um, European culture of like German Fest and Polish Fest. And Folks in the state work really hard. Sports are a religion, like you're a Badger fan or a Packer fan, right? Um, And you also come up with this idea of like what's called the Wisconsin idea that was built out of these socialist ideals where we strive to make sure everyone is included and uplifted. And then on the other hand, right, there's this very different reality, especially for Black folks. I'm a Black woman, I'm a woman of color, and for folks who of color who live in this state. You know, Wisconsin has been named one of the worst places to be Black in America. 
Milwaukee is one of the most segregated cities. It has some of the largest educational disparities. Um, the 53206 zip code, which is in the heart of the city, has one of the largest black male incarceration rates in the entire country. So it was really this backdrop um, to my coming of age as a as a you know young woman of color and a um, young black girl growing up there. And so my parents, like most other parents, they really wanted to provide me with the best in education and the best opportunities in life. And so they made this decision to enroll me in this integration program called the 220 program. And it bussed me from my neighborhood in Milwaukee over an hour each way to this really wealthy and predominantly white suburb in the North Shore. And when I was a freshman in high school, I was like feeling so out of place in my skin as being one of the only folks of color in that school and um, definitely not being as wealthy as like my counterparts. So I begged my mom, like, please let me go to my neighborhood high school, which was called Madison High School. So she made a deal with me. She was like, Alexis, you can go visit and then for the day and then we'll talk. So I went and I just realized that The students in Madison were having this vastly different educational experience than I was having. You know, the building was falling apart. You know, they were learning things I had learned years ago. There wasn't the same access to extracurricular activities. Um, So I made the decision when I was 14 years old that I was going to put my education first and that I was going to put my opportunities first. And so I decided to stay at the school in the North Shore. But with that decision came a great deal of frustration, a great deal of sadness and really anger at the fact that like my cousins, my friends, the kids in my neighborhood did not have that same opportunity based solely on the color of their skin, you know, where they lived and the socioeconomic status they were born into. And so when I went to college, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. But when I started peeking under the hood, right, of the education system, that's where I learned that where I had went to school in the North Shore, the budget was allocating like over $18,000 per pupil Versus in Milwaukee, in my neighborhood, it was just over $6,500. As we know, like um, in Wisconsin, schools are um, funded based on property taxes. And so at that moment, I made the decision that instead of being a teacher, like I really wanted to focus on the systems, the underlying systems and the policies to help right the wrongs for so many folks who have been hurt, um, including me. So when I was a junior in college, I co-founded an organization called uh, Youth Reclaiming Our Communities. We organized young people and parents and teachers in the fight for a more equitable education policy. We supported young people in having a voice on the issues that were impacting them from poverty to criminalization. And this is one of the first places as a young adult where I really saw the power of people coming together, right, and making sure their voices were heard and they were demanding um, to be counted. Then I went to grad school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, studied education policy. I worked at the state level with the now governor, Tony Evers, who was then the state superintendent and working on education access and policy. Um, but I was still really leaning in and supporting young people. I quickly realized the ivory tower was not for me, like I wanted to be focused on the work on the ground. So then I became the director of, the, of Wisconsin Voices, which is the C3 table as part of the State Voices Network I'm part of, moved to D.C. about five years ago, uh, where I ran the National Democracy and Civic Engagement Programs for State Voices. I left, did a stint in philanthropy um, as the deputy of the Funders Committee for Civic Participation, and then I came back home um, a couple years ago to lead State Voices. And the last couple of years have been both challenging and amazing, but where I get to really dedicate my energy 
to building power at the local level and communities where I came from. It's a cool story and a very interesting one. I, I wonder if you can tell me a little bit more about some of the things I don't know too much about, like Wisconsin Voices. So I understand that State Voices has these sort of state-based chapters, and not in every state, but in a lot of the key states. And you mentioned that it's a C3 table. I don't know that everybody knows what that means. What's going on there with a state chapter of State Voices? Yeah, so State Voices is a network. So we're a network of 501c3. And when we say C3, it's nonpartisan, um, even though some of our tables do, do um, have a C4 as well, and they can work on partisan efforts. But majority are nonpartisan state-based tables, and we call them tables but the way that you can think of them, if you don't know what a table is, is like a permanent coalition, permanent infrastructure in the state. You know, we work on issues to expand voting rights, making sure folks are represented in our democracy, engaging folks year round through integrated civic engagement. So both during elections, um, so like voter reg, education turnout, but also around issues and issue organizing on, you know, things that are impacting people every single day. So in our network, we have 23 state tables, and we have over 600 partner organizations that sit at these tables. So they can be local grassroots organizations. They can be um, state organizations that have a national affiliate, like a NAACP or a state-based legal conservation voters. So they sit at these tables, and they work together around, like, how are we going to create a plan to win in our state? What is our progressive agenda? And then the table is providing that infrastructure, that support, right, to provide that strategic coordination, to provide capacity and resources, like data and technology, um, to provide training, to provide direct dollars so that it can be, you know, an organizational rich community of folks coming together and they're as strong as they need to be to do what they need to do for the community. Um, but we also work in all 50 states. So we have about a couple hundred other partners. Um, so a total of 800 state and national partners who, you know, for example, we work in Tennessee and Alabama and they don't have a state table right now, but we work with them and providing them the tools and helping them build that infrastructure that they want in their state. Because what we see is that states who have really strong infrastructures, that lasting coordination of organizations working together to win are having more of an impact, even more than states who don't have that infrastructure. Is a state table for state voices an interesting place to work? Is it an exciting place to work? Is it a frustrating place to work? What's it like? It's both. It's all of that. State voices, the reason why I'm in my position right now is because state voices, when I was running the local table, I was running the Wisconsin table, it was one of the most rewarding jobs I have ever had in my career. It was also hard as hell. Like it is often hard. those things go together, right? Yeah. And it was rewarding because it was like everyone knows we can't do this work alone. So you could be working on education, you could be working on raising the minimum wage, you be working on voting rights, on climate change. But we all know that, yes, those like individual issues need to be moved for the sake of our community. But what undergirds that is like making sure that we have a truly engaged and reflective democracy, that folks have 
access to the ballot so they can make sure their voices are heard on those issues. And another part of it is that we are aligned on our values, right? That we're doing this because we want Black liberation and freedom, because we want, you know, folks of color to have a voice in their self-determination. And so it's bringing all of these diverse organizations together to say, hey, we're in this together, right? We need a plan to win and to be in like disciplined struggle around our values and why we do this work. You know, in 2014, we, we saw huge t- voter turnout, Black voter turnout in the city of Milwaukee, historic. We were able to pass a living wage um, ordinance at the local level um, because young Black people were working side by side with like labor and larger white institutional organizations all working together. So that's why I say it was rewarding, but it was also challenging because you are working with a diversity of organizations. You're having to bring people together. And sometimes you're fighting with one another, right? You're having to make decisions also as a table around our goal is to make organizations stronger and make leaders stronger, right? And we don't have unlimited resources. So you have to make very um, strategic decisions about where you're going to implement and give resources. So do you give them to already high-performing, white-led, high-capacity groups or do you invest that into smaller grassroots organizations that are really trusted in the community, but they don't have as long of a history of impact and they're mostly led by young people and folks of color? You're having to make these decisions all the time, but to do it in a way that is transparent and to do it in a way where you're always grounded in your values. It seems to me that would require some political skills to run a chapter like that? What did you learn about how do you get everybody on board? How do you facilitate something like that? First, I think it's all about relationships. Like you have to have good relationships with folks and the relationships are needed so you can build trust and trust in a way where people know that you're coming from a good place and that when you do have to have a challenging conversation, that they know you and they know there's a a higher purpose for it. And I think you always have to stand by your values and like by your beliefs. Like when I came into this um, new role at State Voices National, I was very clear that there were a few things that were non-negotiable for me. Like that State Voices was a national organization that was going to be in service to the states. We were going to be a reflection of our values in everything that we do. And then we were going to center BIPOC communities. We were going to fight against anti-Blackness. And we were going to build a liberated world for Black people because I believe that when Black people are free, we can all be free. So I made this very clear to the board of directors, to the state directors, to our partners. I intentionally had about nine conversations before I took this role because I thought it was important that they knew what my non-negotiables were. They knew my beliefs, where I was coming from and how I was going to lead. And so I think being honest in who you are, how you're leading, and then when you have to make difficult decisions, that you can explain what lines up with that. Did you find resistance at all to that sort of very racially conscious angle that you took on the defining of this job? I did not. 
I think Safe Voices was ready for that shift. And they knew that in the moment we were politically and where we needed to grow, that's the shift we had to make. And we had to be unapologetic about it. That doesn't mean that all of the tables of the organizations, they found that shift easy or or that even we're finding it easy to navigate right now. People had to say, we have to be reflective and hold a mirror up to ourselves around how we are perpetuating, you know, white supremacy culture inside of our organizations. It also meant like, who are we in partnership with at our tables versus not, right? And um, some of those partnerships are maybe um, short term for political gain, but maybe they're not in deep, you know, alignment with us on, on those types of values. So it's something that is really like undergirding our conversations and how we're moving forward. But I think folks know that we need like bold, vision right now, we need aspiration. And so folks were like really leaning in to, even though we have to do work and we're not there yet, and we're still not there yet, that this is where we need to grow. This is where we need to be and push ourselves. Those non-negotiable things that you're talking about, how did that like change the mission of State Voices or, or the actual like allocation of resources? Concretely, what's different now because of the attitude that you bring to this job? Yeah, I mean, a number of things are different. I think our, our our vision is different, that we are very clear that we are doing this work to build a multiracial democracy, but that we're grounded in building political power for BIPOC communities that we so that we can all thrive, we can all live in our full dignity. So even our mission changed, which changed then our power building analysis of what we do to get there. We had deep conversations around who are we accountable to this in this work? Like, who are our people? And we used to use language like the rising American electorate, a new American majority, which seemed very politically targeted, like only being used for electoral outcomes and also wasn't taking into account the diversity within our communities. Or maybe it was camouflaging it in a certain way, right? Or, it, you know, it was like you had to decode it to get to what it meant. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so we had to have conversations around, like, who are our people? Who are we accountable to? How do we talk about, you know, who we are creating the conditions to build power for? And we started to use BIPOC um, instead of people of color. And we use BIPOC because... We think it's the term right now, and it may evolve, of people of color, you know, facing varying types of discrimination and prejudice that we know, you know, systemic racism, um, you know, continues to oppress and invalidate and impact the lives of Black and Indigenous people in ways that other people of color may not necessarily experience. Um, Black and Indigenous individuals and communities still bear that impact of right historic slavery and genocide. And so... BIPOC really aims to bring to the center the specific violence and discrimination experienced by Black and Indigenous people and reinforces that not all people of color have that same experience, particularly when it comes to, you know, legislation and it comes to systemic oppression. So it it impacted that. Um, It impacted our internal processes and policies. So not only diversity, like who we hire, but who is in power, who has a seat at the table, its impact, how we think about what does power building mean in the sense of political power and, 
you know, in the middle of the racial justice uprisings of last year, we had some conversations with the movement for Black Lives and others around, you know, what does the census mean in all of this? What does like voting mean in all of this? And we're very clear, as Alicia Garza says, like voting will not give us liberation, but it's an important litmus test of our organizing. And it brings us like one step closer to having the full voice that we that we need um, and want. We had to become more clear around what our specific role is in the long term strategy of like building power for BIPOC communities and where resources go. I'm very proud that our State Voices team is 70 percent people of color. Our executive team is 100 percent women of color, 75 percent black women. Um, Our data and tech team for the first time in our history is led by women and people of color. About 60 to 70 percent of all of our data staff are women and people of color. About 70 percent of all of our state directors are women of color. And so it's very important that we are not only hiring folks that have trust in the community, but then that we're investing in those leaders and then also investing in the organizations on the ground of folks that are led by folks of color. I mean, the progressive coalition in the United States and in the states is inevitably multiracial. None of us can do this alone. We need the whole team, the breadth of the team. Otherwise, we lose to the other side, which is increasingly clear about how opposed they are to our our view of the world, right, generally. What have you learned about how you steer coalition in that kind of multiracial democracy that we're all trying to build together? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. It's very difficult. And I think in communities and states where where it is not predominantly folks of color, there is a responsibility of white people talking to other white people about the reason why we're focused on building political power for for BIPOC communities. That we are still talking with other white folks about the issues that are important to them and that we need them and want them to be part of a diverse multiracial coalition, but that the lens and the grounding of that work is still focused on fighting back against anti-Blackness. And so I think as a coalition, you always have to kind of weave that thread of this is hopefully the work that you're doing is going to have immediate impact in communities across the state, regardless if they're white, low income, different communities of color, but always keeping an eye on the prize and like, what is, what are we building towards over the next, you know, two to four political cycles? Or what are we building towards in the issues that we're impacting? And how are we looking at the ramifications of what we're doing um, on the impacts it's going to have on people of color disproportionately. And so I think as coalitions and leaders who are helping to organize coalitions, it's, like I said, it's that thread. It's really, really challenging, but it's so, so important. How does that view work as a political strategy? Is it an effective one? I think so. I mean, I think we have kind of like, uh, we'll have to wait and see. But I think that 
you look at what happened in 2020, there was this huge pushback against white supremacy. I just look at like Black Lives Matter, for example, was this aspirational, you know, policy agenda and declaration that like Black Lives Matter and it started in 2012 and you were just starting to see the fruits of it in 2020. And then in 2020, now you're starting to see this aspirational vision for how police and criminalization is showing up in communities of color and having this harmful impact. And so there's calls for, you know, defunding or abolition of police. Now, we know that that's not going to change overnight, but we're already starting to see seeds of that impact in in Minneapolis and in Oakland and and in Illinois who ended cash bail, for example. But just think of like what that can look like in the next five or 10 years. Uh, We're seeing so many young people and so many folks of color who were the decisive voice, right, in this year, in 2020. Um, We saw, you know, white people who were leaning in and like wanting to learn more and also push back against white supremacy. And so I do think it is a winning strategy. I don't think when lives are at stake that we can we can roll this back. Um, that is not okay. Um, at the same time, we also have to be very clear that we can't underestimate white supremacy and how it's showing up. This is our strategy and this is our plan. And what I see the progressive ecosystems plan and the organizations that we're working with over the next 10 years, I do think that, you know, there's going to be a lot more fights and challenges that are going to have huge impacts on people's lives. But I also think that we have to, we have to keep our eye on that prize. What's the difference between what state voices does and what America votes does? Yeah. So um, America votes is, I would say like our sister organization. Like we um, work closely together. We're legally allowable, like on issues like voting rights or on certain issue campaigns, but they really are the C4 or partisan infrastructure where we are the C3. We have about six tables that we um, that both have a C3 and C4. So they're both the state voices and America Votes tables. But the way that infrastructure was built up was happened, I think around 2006, where the Blueprint Project started thinking about how do we provide not only data and technology, but economies of scale for the progressive agenda to win. And the idea that having a strong state-based infrastructure was kind of a square. It was having strong C3 table and infrastructure, C4 table, so that's like us in America votes, communications hub, which was progress now, and then donors and philanthropy, so like committee on state. So um, the measure was, I would say, over like the last five years was like a state would have strong infrastructure if it had all of those elements and they were coordinating and working together, were legally allowable. I think there's definitely some gaps and challenges and how that's been progressing, but that's kind of how we overlap and we're in partnership together, um, and especially around data and tech. Did something happen to progress now? You know, I to be honest, I'm not even 100% sure what has happened, but they definitely, I don't think, evolved in the way that they you know, were intended. So there are certain states that still have strong progress now, like Michigan, New Mexico. But I think there's a national and kind of lasting infrastructure around communications hub. They didn't last in that way. And so a lot of other work has started to try either try to take its place 
or even America Votes or State Voices, you know, has been seen as helping to place some of that gap in certain states. How do you think we stack up against the conservative side in this C3, C4 state by state power balance? Do we have the resources that they have? Do we have the infrastructure that they've built? Are we, are we ahead anywhere? What does it look like to you? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think that it's a both and, right? We have the people. Um, everyone voted. I think that progressives will win all the time. Well, not in, not in Idaho, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have the organizing chops, even though the conservatives have definitely gotten better over the last cycle, like real relational, deep organizing. But that is still like our bread and butter. I mean, last year, our network alone had over 228 million voter contacts. We were contacting people multiple times over the course of the cycle. You know, we run really strong voter registration programs. We layered on um, census. We are doing great at like voter protection. We are, you know, really good, I think, at data and technology. And last year, um, we really had to pivot from our traditional data and tech tools to new digital tools and relational organizing tools. And we were able to acquire more than 100 million new mobile numbers to reach out to folks of color and young people and, you know, unregistered first time voters. And we have really great training. I think where we have gaps would be around our investment in leaders and like leadership development in some of our training, I think is huge. I don't remember the exact um, percentage, but I've definitely heard that the right like outspends us like maybe 10 to one or more of like leadership development. I also think that we... Um, need to think about where we can consolidate, like that we have so many organizations doing so many things and not shy away from like um, really, really thinking big and what a long-term strategy is. I think that we've been on the defense for so long and we tend to think cycle to cycle, even in like two-year cycles. And I really think that we need a space to invest in like what is going to make a difference in the next 10, 20, 30 years and then have a like a, a reverse engineer plan for how we're going to get there. Of course, still needing to respond in the in-between. But I think those are some of the areas where the right, I think, has excelled in like thinking really long-term, um, keeping really focused of that, and then investing in people and organizations um, that is in alignment with their strategy. Tell me about how you landed the job as the CEO. There's a lot of state directors to pick from and people who weren't state directors who ran other organizations. How did you come to this position? At the time I was working at the Funders Committee for Civic Participation. So I was working in the philanthropic space. State Voices was in a moment of transition where as a national organization, they really needed to think about like how they needed to grow moving forward and transform in the moment. I still kept in touch with like, you know, both the funders and folks on the board and state directors who were doing the work. And I think that my experience, both as a state director, but also working, running some of their national civic engagement programs and then working in philanthropy gave me experience in a few different areas. 
that, you know, was really lined up for the job. Um, and so some folks from the board and some of the state directors came to me and they were like, we want you, you know? <laughs> and so, <Awesome>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, which is make you know, definitely makes you feel good. Um, but I wanted this job too. It felt right. And I also knew, like I said, we were in a moment of a transition as an organization and I wanted to be a part of thinking and, and really realizing what this organization that has meant so much in my life and that I've seen firsthand the impact that it's had on people and organizations, people on the ground to make it even better. And so it was just like the, the perfect moment of you know everything lining up. How big of an organization is State Voices right now? How many people work for it directly uh, in the national part? Yeah, so national, we have, uh, I would say like a smaller to medium-sized staff. We have just over 30, uh, like we have 31 people. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a lot of people, yeah. Yeah, so. Something to manage. Yeah, yeah, you know, but we also pay for um, data staff in all of our 23 states. Um, and so, but they're not employed through us directly. They're employed directly through the state tables. Um, but we raise the funding to support those positions. So, is it part of your job to raise funding? Yes. What does the budget look like for you in a year? Right now, I can't even say what it is because it's changed so much. Um, when I came into the organization, we were in a deficit. Our budget was around uh, seven million. Then it went up in 2019 to around nine million, and we were then in the you know out of the deficit plus four million. In 2020, our goal was to raise about 14 million, but I ended up raising 30. Big year, big political year, yeah. Right, um, two thirds of that went directly back into the field, so we regranted directly 10 million dollars. Um, to the tables and organizations on the ground, another 10 million went into our new data and tools and like having to shift everything. Um, And the other 10 million was both like overhead, but also providing support for folks on the ground. And so I haven't had like a stable (laughs) budget and like able to compare it against anything. Um, But I can say we are a vastly different organization than we were a couple years ago. Um, and so if I had to guess, I would say that we'll probably stay around the $20 million range. Where's that money coming from? It's mostly coming from, you know, institutional donors, um, like, and, and, you know, foundations. We do have a growing individual donor base. Um, last year we launched our people power fund for individuals to be able to give, but the, the vast majority comes from, from foundations. You've mentioned several times that that you're providing technology out into the States. Tell me what you currently are providing. Yeah. So we kind of have the, what we term legacy tools, which is the van, right? The van for, which is uh, the voter file. Yeah. The voter file. Yeah. Yep. yep. And we provide that for free or very, very low cost to organizations. And then a few years ago, we started to offer like hustle or get through like, you know, to the text messaging programs, you know, in 2020, just expanded to like, you know, more reporting tools um, like the S tool and Civis to reach, which is more like organizing tools where people can have more like organizing conversations on issues to, you know, get through and, you know, both text messages and predictive dialer tools 
to ballot ready on tools around vote by mail. And so we really brought all these new tools online in 2020 and trained over 5,000 organizers in using these new tools. And I think our goal is moving forward that we don't dip back down to only using the van and a couple other tools. Our goal has to be to democratize data. Our goal has to be to really operate in a way that folks are organizing in the 21st century. Folks want to own their data. They want to have real-time reporting. They want to make sure that they're able to capture, like, you know, qualitatively the conversations they're having. And they want all of these tools to be able to talk to one another. So that's that moment that we're in, which I think is both really exciting, but it's also a bit terrifying because I think that we can do it and we can do it together. I'm just like, how do we sustain at this level and continue to grow, continue to adapt, continue to train? I keep telling folks, like our funders, I was like, last year we had to get ready. Like now I want to stay ready. I don't want to have to get ready again for 2022, get ready 2024. This is the way we organize now. Right. And so digital isn't just this offshoot. It's integrated into everything that we do. Well, speaking of integration, once you have that kind of proliferation of different specialized tools, there's a bit of a challenge in having that data shared amongst them. How are you making progress in that challenge? We're actually dealing with some of that challenge right now. We're getting ready to release our post-election report and we have some of the data But then some of our data we know isn't accurate because we're having to look at all these different data sources instead of just having one place where it can plug into on the back end. And so we're looking at, you know, at Civis or different opportunities. We're also talking with America Votes and the Movement Cooperative around how we can share data or even create something together that will do this. So that's both a challenge and an opportunity. I recently talked to Blue Link, which is hoping to flow data among different progressive tools. Are you aware of that one? I'm not personally, but that doesn't mean my, my data team isn't. We we released in 2020 a data and tools tech guide because there's so many tools that are popping up. It's just like, it's kind of crazy. You can't even keep up with all of them. So what our data team does is they vet them and they like test them. And so we tested them, in t- a lot of them in 2019 or early 2020, and then we released a guide to the progressive ecosystem where we tested, I think it was about 48 tools. And then we said, this is what we think works and why, you know, this is where we still see some challenges. And w- our, the feedback on it was great because people were like, we don't have time to vet all of these tools and test them all out. So we're going to do um, our second guide um, later in, in 2021. Why are you not in 50 states? I think there's a couple of reasons. I don't necessarily believe that a 50-state strategy is the right strategy. We're thinking critically about where we need to expand. We have an emerging states program where there are tables that are forming. They're not affiliated with us yet, but we're working with them on like how to build a strong C3 infrastructure. So we're working in Iowa, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, um, West Virginia, You know, I do think that there will be new tables that are coming up um, that we'll affiliate with. I think Tennessee, for example, we have um, really focusing on the Southeast and we're starting to think about Texas. We used to have a table in Texas. Texas is very difficult. I think that Texas is, um, we're thinking about a regional strategy there, maybe regional tables. 
Um, I think people are scared of Texas in the same way where they think that they invest a lot and like there's always issues similar to Florida. We have to figure that out. But people are asking right now, like, who is the next Georgia? Like, that's the que- that's the number one question I've been getting, you know, post 2020. And I'm like, number one, Georgia is only Georgia because there was a long term investment in infrastructure and an organizers and people doing the work coupled with like great leadership, coupled with a focus on like broadening the coalition and on communities of color. And demographic change taking it in our direction, which is happening in Texas, which is happening in North Carolina, you know, and other candidates for, you know, going blue states. Yep, exactly. So that's why people are like, well, Texas is the next, you know. But but we don't know the time frame. Yeah, we we don't know the time frame. People want to accelerate it. What I'm afraid of is that it will be an either or strategy versus both and. Meaning that then investment is taken out of, you know, places around the around the Rust Belt and then invested. States that we need to hold on to. Yeah, we have to be very careful. And then the last thing I'll say is just like resources, time and capacity. Like we're, you know, $20 million organization with 23 state tables. That would need to like double and triple if we're in all 50 states. Um, but I think there's like some really important conversations to be had this year about where we want to go by 2024-2028. After Trump came in, the conservative side was kind of ascendant in different parts of the government and it put the progressive side on its heels and we worked really hard to gain back power for progressives. Are we still working full speed on that post getting the presidency back and and gaining some progressive victories elsewhere? Where are we? Yes, we're still working full speed ahead. Our work does not stop the day after the election. Our work is year round. It's day in and day out. And so our folks are constantly organizing, are constantly talking to folks around the issues that are impacting them, are making connections to what that means for local municipal elections, for state elections, for federal elections. Um, what that means for, you know, who are the next elected officials. Like, uh, we are full steam ahead. That's what makes our work both so exciting, but also really challenging because our work doesn't stop. One of the things that came out um, of our new strategic direction that we did um, when I first came on board is really looking at what I was mentioning before about what our long-term vision is and where we need to shift. Is we really got into a conversation around political power and what that means, and what we were hearing from a lot of our partners, what we we're hearing from um, our states is that folks feel like we need a C4. A C3 organization definitely can and does build power, and we do that. But why not have all the tools in, at our disposal? Um, and so this year, we're um, exploring and having deep conversations if we should get a C4 and what that will mean for our work and how that will expand in 2022 and beyond. For people who are not steeped in all of these organizations that make up the progressive ecosystem, what do you think would surprise them the most about state voices and what it is and how it fits in? I think that people would be surprised around like how much we do that's in the background. 
we used to consider ourselves the invisible glue. We don't use that term anymore, but we still consider ourselves like a backbone organization. And so we play a very unique role in like the movement and in the ecosystem because we are really thinking about like what do leaders and organizations need to thrive and have the tools and resources and capacity that they need to do their work. And so most organizations brilliantly and should, right, are focusing on organizing people and communities. And we know that we are ultimately accountable to those people. But our role is in like making sure the organizations that are organizing people are at their best. We don't do like all the flashy work. Like we provide that data and tech support and we provide trainings and we move money. But I honestly believe that if there wasn't organizations like State Voices or like America Votes or other organizations that are doing that infrastructure work um, and that and that work in the in the background, that we wouldn't be seeing um, some of the victories that we that we have been over the last year and you know four years. If you could deliver a message to the leaders of all these progressive organizations that make up your tables to change something about what they do, what would you tell them collectively? I would say, and I'm, and I'm going to talk to me right now as part of this, like to all of us, we have to do a better job of taking care of ourselves. We are our best assets and folks are getting burnt out. If 2020 taught us anything, it's that we need to slow down a bit and that's okay. That doesn't mean that we're not going to have the impact. That doesn't mean that we still can't be strategic. But how do we balance that with having organizations that support people as being whole people? One thing that I'm so proud of in 2020 is that State Voices went to a four-day work week. We provided like at-home stipends for people. We provided like more information and support on mental health and caring, wellness programs. We provided flexible schedules for folks. And then we look at the impact that we had in 2020 while we were still being able to care for people. And I think that's really amazing. And so what I would say is that we can still go out there, we can kick ass, we can have this impact. And at the same time, we can care for ourselves. And our organizations have to model doing that because we can't be out there caring for communities and taking care of others if that's not being reflected inside of our organizations. I think that's a a challenge with any kind of organization is how do we both be as productive as we possibly can and not burn our people out and, you know, keep people inspired and, and efficient and useful and happy and all of the things that create true productivity, right? Sounds like you might be a little bit tired yourself from the effort of of the political life you've led. What keeps you in the game? I got burnt out before. There was a moment, probably in the mid of my career, I've been doing this for twenty years, where I was just burnt out, and I needed to take a step step back from being an executive director. And I went into other roles within the movement where I could play a supportive role, but didn't want to 
take on all the responsibilities of like what it means to be ED and lead an organization. And I came back to being an ED. This is my first time being an ED in I think about four or five years after taking that step back because I was very clear about my commitment. And because with my age, now like 40 years old, I'm clear like what I'm good at. And I'm a good executive director. Like, of course, I have challenges and where I need to grow, but that that's where I was like, I can play this unique role and in a role where I have some expertise, but I'm very, very clear with myself and with my team that I'm not going to do that at the expense of myself. So I enjoy, and what keeps me in it is like, I love like seeing big ideas come to life. I love organizing a team around a common goal. Most people don't like to fundraise. I love, you know, talking about this vision for our work and bringing in money and moving it to like the folks on the ground to be able to do it. And I love like how we're transforming internally as an organization and, you know, having difficult conversations around race and social justice and where we want to grow. I love all of that. And I also probably the biggest personal struggle I've had with my life is work-life balance. And so that's a constant thing for me. I'm very good at like holding it up for other people and in the culture of the organization. I just know for myself, like I can be great at this, but I can only be great at this if I'm taking care of me. I've talked to a few other executive directors recently who have uh, noted that groups with peers, with other EDs have been really good support. You have something like that? Yes. Tell me about that. The big smile on my face. I do. I I would not. I don't know what I would do without them. So when I was coming into this, it just happened um, like around 2017, 2018. There was just this moment where a lot of the national organizations who had existed for a long time or infrastructure organizations were starting to be taken over and led by people of color, younger people of color. And we were new to our roles. And so I had known them just like for being in the movement and doing work. So we just started off by going to happy hour when we were able to see each other and like having drinks and like checking in on each other. And it's turned into a cohort of what we call the new executive directors of color um, relationships and resilience, where we support one another, both on you know personal level, organizational level. We share resources with one another. We strategize together. You know, we think about how we can coordinate together. Um, and we talk to both funders and the larger ecosystem about the importance of investing in leaders of color. I'm sure if you talk to any of them, everybody's like, there's been a moment where that cohort has saved my life. And I've just learned so much from them. We actually have a, a meeting this afternoon, and so to talk about like what we're going to do for 2021 together. So, what's the best advice that you've received about having this kind of role and doing it well? And what's the advice that you would give to someone else? Probably the best advice that I've received is don't overthink things and get out of your head. Like you're not going to please everyone. And so your goal can't be that everyone is going to like you or agree with you. And that's okay. As long as you're coming from a place of like integrity and that trust um, to make those decisive decisions. And um, you have to kind of let go of what other people think all the time. I would say that the um, advice I would give others 
those who are running organizations or not is to trust your gut. We're too often taught to only think with our with our brains. Anytime I I haven't trusted my gut and like that's when I've steered I've steered wrong and I've made bad decisions. So take that moment just to reflect and trust yourself and you'll you'll make the right decisions. Politics can be a very it can be very challenging emotionally because of the disagreements, because people have sharp elbows, because people are pushing agendas, because you don't always get appreciated, because of a lot of these things that just make the game hard. When you're in a people business, you got to deal with people. How do you cope with that? How do you manage yourself through those sort of challenges? Yeah, I will also add one other thing. I think our our work is difficult because we're idealists. We want the world to be better, right? And we get disappointed. And yeah, and we get disappointed <laughs> with each other. We get disappointed with the organizations. And so people spend a lot of time, I think, overanalyzing. Like we definitely should be challenging and making our organizations better and like, you know, being in a better relationship with one another. But I think sometimes like our idealism gets in the way where we're like putting our energy in some of the wrong places. I think I've dealt with it by just always keeping like the bigger picture, like at the forefront. And as a leader, like I always am like completely willing to cop up, you know, to when I'm wrong. I will tell you when I made a mistake. And be very clear about it and say, like, I'm going to do better and learn from it. But you can't hold me or other people to this high pedestal. I don't hold myself there. I'm like in it with everybody else. And we're trying to just do the thing I say to myself the most often is like one day at a time. I'm just like, we put one foot in front of the other, you know, keep the high level where we need it. And I'm just going to like, that's all we can do is push forward. I think there's a lot of wisdom there, and I appreciate you sharing it. Is there a question that I failed to ask that I should have? Um, I don't think so. I think that um, I really enjoy this conversation. You asked me things that I had an opportunity to reflect on and think about more, so I can't wait to think about those things more. Um, and I just really appreciate the space. I very much appreciate you taking the time. Uh, anything else you want to say? This year, redistricting is huge. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um, I wish we picked up some more state legislatures. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll just say, like, our fight for a reflective and representative democracy is taking place this year. And so for all people, especially progressive folks, communities of color, you know, pay attention to what's happening. Our fight is now. And also pay attention to what's happening in a lot of states where um, we think that there's going to be some rollbacks of voting rights. Definitely. Um, so, you know, that's where a lot of our efforts are right now. Well, I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. That was Alexis Anderson Reed. She's at statevoices.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.